Well, good morning again. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, that will be our sermon text for this morning, Acts chapter 15, verses uh, 1 through 35. Let me, uh, let me pray before we read this together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you to hear from you, to hear from you through your word. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would uh, allow me to speak what is true and right and good and allow uh, us to hear. Uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to believe. Uh, Father, your word, and we pray that by your spirit, you would uh, transform us by it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. and They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related to us, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. 
Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Well, years ago, I was talking with a girl in a video game store, and she said to me that she saw, thought that everybody had one thing. Uh, everybody had one thing that, that, gave, uh, that they gave their life to, and that in turn, it gave their life meaning. And for her, she said, it was video games. For somebody else, it, it might be sports. For yet others, she said, it might be religion or work or academics or family. Everybody had something she thought. And I actually think she was on to something. Uh, we, we were all created to revolve around one thing. In fact, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Not two, in the end, just one. One thing to give us purpose and peace. Uh, one thing to give us rest and a reason to get up in the morning. Well, what is your one thing? Uh, what is it that gives you peace? What do you serve? What directs the course of your life? What we're going to see this morning is that the Christian life must be guided and motivated by one thing, and that is Christ. Uh, the Christian life must be guided and motivated not by, not by moralism or a desire to save ourselves by doing good. Uh, the Christian life must be guided and motivated by our commitment to Christ and our Christ-like love for one another. The Christian life is radically focused on one thing, or better, one person, Jesus. And so uh, you can see our outline this morning on the back of the bulletin is pretty simple and singularly focused. We're going to talk about rest in Jesus, submission to Jesus, and love like Jesus. So our outline is to rest in Jesus, submit to Jesus, and love like Jesus. And yet, before we go there, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, you, you may have noticed that the Christian life is not without controversy. Sometimes Christians fight. Uh, conflict in and of itself, of course, is not bad. Uh, what we find throughout church history is that conflict actually gives the church the opportunity to reflect on what it believes and to articulate its beliefs and practices and priorities more fully. In fact, during the first four centuries of the church, it was conflict that allowed and better maybe forced the church uh, to articulate its theology, uh, particularly its, its doctrine of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and its doctrine of Christ as the God-man. 
It, it was in the 16th century that uh, through controversy, the church came to more fully articulate its understanding of authority, scripture alone, and its understanding of grace, right? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And yet still today, there are controversies, uh, many of which are opportunities for us to wrestle through the truths of Scripture and articulate more faithfully to a fallen world the truths of God and the gospel. But the church didn't begin to wrestle with life and Scripture in uh, the 21st century or the 16th century or the 4th century. Uh, the church has been wrestling from the beginning. Acts 15 is about such wrestling. It's about a conflict in the church. And things uh, had been going pretty well in Acts, all in all, up to this point. Uh, Jesus sent his apostles to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the gospel had begun to go out to do just that, just as Jesus said. Not without controversy or conflict, but it had gone out. It was not a, just a geographic expansion, of course, but an ethnic and religious one as well. The gospel had gone from a pious Jew all the way to pagan Gentiles. And many people were excited about this widening of the grace of God, this opening up of his grace, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, not only to the pious, but even to the pagans. But others were not so excited. And we read about that in Acts 15, verse 1. Uh, 15.1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And uh, notice right away that this is, this is an issue of salvation. Uh, unless you do this, they were saying, you cannot be saved. And, and this is one of the central questions of Christianity, isn't it? What saves us? Christianity teaches that we are sinners, that the world is broken, that, that all are condemned. You, know, uh, you may have heard the, the G.K. Chesterton quote. He said uh, at some point that human sinfulness is the only part of Christianity that can really be proved. <laughs> or there's a, a quote that is supposed, uh, supposedly said by Malcolm Muggeridge uh, that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. <laughs> and the point is, right, that human beings are morally broken. And I would add that the world is a mess. And uh, both of those facts are, on the one hand, too obvious to state, while at the same time something we daily lie to ourselves about and try to avoid. One of the central questions of Christianity, though, is, is what is it that will get us out of this mess? What is it that can make things right? And, of course, the whole of Scripture teaches us that God has a plan, that God is doing something, that he is at work to make things right. And, and here in Acts 15, the crux of the question is, according to that plan, okay, do Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be saved? For Paul and Barnabas, as we've seen throughout Acts, the answer is clearly no, not at all. Uh, they, they have been preaching to Gentiles since chapter 11 and have not required circumcision, uh, but others disagreed. And so after much debate, Paul and Barnabas and others are sent down to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And as they go, they, they tell the church throughout all Phoenicia and Samaria, that is, as they're traveling, all that God had done among the Gentiles, telling about the conversions in city after city on their first missionary journey. And even in Jerusalem, right, they, they receive this favorable welcome by the church, by the apostles, by the elders, and to them as well, they declared all that God had done. But 
in Jerusalem again, we hear in verse 5, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And this brings us to our, our first of three points, right? Point one is to rest in Jesus. Right? The, the, the question is, what does it take to have your sins forgiven? Uh, what does it take to be loved and accepted by God? What does it take to have the hope of the resurrection? What must one do to be saved? And sometimes people, even Christians, agonize over this question. Uh, how much do I have to change before God will love me? Or, or how often do I have to repent? How many, how many sins do I have to give up before I can be forgiven? How many times do I have to go to church? Uh, do I have to stop listening to my favorite music or watching my favorite movies or stop dancing or smoking or drinking alcohol? Uh, at what point have I done enough for God to say, that, that's good, you're forgiven? Here's the way the question was put in the first century, right? Was it necessary to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to become a Christian and be saved? The question is tricky here because, of course, God commanded circumcision and uh, God gave the law of Moses. And so this is God's sign and God's law. It makes complete sense that the early church uh, would assume that it must be followed. So was it necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved? And how do you even decide such a thing as the church wrestles with this question? Well, look at verse 6. Uh, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, this is kind of a significant verse and a significant, significant chapter for Presbyterians uh, who like our church polity. Uh, we call this chapter the Jerusalem Council. Uh, it's one of the things that shows the legitimacy of church councils, uh, that, that multiple people coming together from multiple churches, at least Antioch and Jerusalem here, specifically the, the leadership of those churches, the apostles and the elders gathering together to deliberate on a matter that concerned the church at large. And however you might interpret the details of church polity here, at the heart is, is this one idea that individual churches are, are not autonomous. Uh, in the letter, they will lay down, later in the chapter, they will lay down specific requirements, which we'll look at in a moment. Uh, and the point is this, they were requirements, not suggestions. Uh, and what this means is individual churches of Antioch and so on, right, were not autonomous. They weren't self-governed, uh, but they submitted to this Jerusalem council. Uh, you might say uh, that that was only because of the presence of the apostles here. If you've been reading through Acts and you know uh, sort of how much authority the apostles have. Um, but the emphasis here is on the fact that it was the apostles and the elders together who came to this conclusion. Every time the apostles are mentioned in this chapter, it's apostles and elders, even James, the, the moderator of this meeting, right, though he's the brother of Jesus, he wasn't one of the 12, wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Uh, he may have been an elder in the Jerusalem church. And so clearly we have elders living out one of the functions of elders, right, discerning biblical truth and calling the church at large to obedience to that truth. In Presbyterian circles, we call that the Presbytery or the General Assembly, right? A gathering of elders regionally or nationally to oversee the church within its bounds. And so, uh, however you understand the polity here, uh, the apostles and the elders are gathered together. And after much debate, we read in verse 7 uh, that Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And uh, Peter points out a number of things here. Uh, he, he, God had sent the gospel to the Gentiles through Peter. We saw that back in Acts chapter 10. And this was not uh, a Peter-prompted act, right? This was a God-prompted act. Peter would have never gone to Cornelius' household had God not almost kicked him out the door and said, Go. And uh, he also, Peter also recounts that God, had gave, God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles at that point, just as he did to the Jews in the beginning, and that God made no distinction between Gentile and Jew, but their hearts were cleansed by faith, just like the Jews' hearts were. Verse 11, then, is, is pretty significant, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And uh, uh, some say that verse 11 should actually read a little bit differently. I don't know how your Bible reads, uh, but some say that it should read, we believe so that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And uh, so one commentator, Howard Marshall, says the ESV translation, we believe that we will be saved, is actually misleading since Peter is talking about the kind of faith in God that leads to salvation, See, the context is the faith of the Gentiles, right? Verse 7, the, the, the word, they heard the word of the gospel and believed. Uh, verse 9, their hearts were cleansed by faith. And so verse 11, verse 11, we believe so that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Uh, and if this is a better understanding of the verse, it, it's significant. Uh, it's significant because it echoes Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.16, Paul says, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Now, I, I, I want to pause here for a minute. Uh, I hope not to, uh, not to lose you, but just to point something out. In Acts 15.1 says, uh, by, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, again, about Antioch, same place, Paul says, certain men came from James in Judea, teaching the same thing, the necessity of circumcision. In fact, uh, James will say in verse 24 that the men who caused the trouble were from us, though we gave them no instructions. That is, they, they, they came out from us, they came out from James and the, the Jewish uh, brothers in Jerusalem, but they did not have their authorization to teach what they taught. Why do I point this out? These two verses, uh, Acts 15.1 and Galatians 2.12, are, are most likely talking about the same thing. Uh, they're speaking about the same incident. And so what we have here in, in Galatians and Acts is sort of two different takes on the same story of what happens in Antioch. And given that, the story goes a little something like this. Uh, some men come to Antioch, the church in Antioch, from Jerusalem, and they preach the necessity of circumcision, maybe even claiming the authority of James back in Jerusalem. We know from Galatians that Peter and Barnabas, probably not intending to compromise the gospel, maybe considering these men uh, weaker brothers, right, not wanting to cause offense to them, they stop eating with the Gentiles, Galatians tells us. But Paul in Galatians says he, he sees this for what it is. It's compromise, adding law-keeping, circumcision, good works on top of faith in Jesus. He rebukes Peter with these words in Galatians 2.16, in part, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Peter receives that rebuke, he sees his error, and then he goes with Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. Now, all of that... Is kind of alighted in one verse in Acts, in Acts 15.2. Acts 15.2 summarizes all that by saying, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. 
right? That, that's chapter two of Galatians. <laughs> uh, no small dissension and debate. <clears throat> uh, Luke likely leaves out the bit about Peter because it's not central to, to the point of his story here. Uh, but here's the point. Uh, both the apostle to the Jews, Peter in Acts 15, and the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul in Galatians 2.16, agree that we are saved by faith, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, let me put it differently, right? You, you don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. Jew and Gentile are both saved by grace. Or let me expand on that, right? There, there are no cultural markers that you must take on in order to be saved, right? You don't have to become Jewish or Western or European or American or whatever. Salvation is not a matter of culture. It's a matter of faith in Jesus. Jesus saves. That's the gospel, right? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul in, in Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So you don't have to become Jewish to be saved. Jew and Gentile, American and Chinese, North Korean and South Korean, Bhutanese and Botswana, all are saved by faith in Jesus. Culture is, is not a matter of salvation, right? Jesus saves. Or let me put it uh, uh, yet another way. Law-keeping is not a matter of salvation, right? Jesus saves. If you're outside of Christ, there's nothing you can do to earn God's love, right? There's no law you can keep. There's no obedience you can offer to twist God's arm. But if you are in Christ by faith, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less than he does right now. God loves you in Christ. This is why our first point is rest in Jesus. We're not saved by our works, not by law keeping, not by culture, Jewish or otherwise. We are saved through faith and by Jesus. Or put it differently, we're saved not by works, but by grace, which is God's unmerited, freely given favor. So the first argument uh, given by Peter is that God makes no distinction. Makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everybody's saved in the same way. Everybody enters into uh, God's salvation in the same way through faith. Well, once Peter gets up and he, he gives that rousing speech, the, the assembly becomes quiet, which kind of implies that maybe they were noisy before that. Um, and this gives Barnabas and Paul the chance to speak. And they tell of all that God had done through them, including the signs and the wonders in verse 12. And finally, James gets up and James takes uh, what Simeon, that's Peter's Jewish name, had said, and he builds on that. And it's interesting, he uses Peter's Jewish name and he skips over Paul and Barnabas in his speech, probably as a good tactic of persuasion, right? Paul and Barnabas uh, were likely seen as the enemy to these people, right? They, they were enemies of the law, enemies of all things Jewish. They were fraternizing with Gentiles. So James doesn't mention them. He just mentions Simeon. And uh, Peter had made the argument that God's, from God's work in history, look at what God did through me among Cornelius and others. James supports that argument with an argument from Scripture. And uh, he affirms Peter quoting Amos in verses 16 to 18, which says, uh, Amos says, Peter quote, or, uh, James quoting Amos, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. You see, what James shows is this opening up to the Gentiles is not something unexpected. It's not like God is blindsiding us with what he's doing. God always had a plan for the Gentiles from of old. 
The tent of David, that is the house or the kingdom of David, would be rebuilt. God would reestablish his kingdom. And then the nations, even the Gentiles, would seek the Lord. So the early church, of course, saw Jesus as the son of David, the king who would rule forever on David's throne. So the tent of David has been rebuilt in the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Now is the time, then, for the Gentiles to seek the Lord. This was always God's plan for Gentiles to seek the Lord as Gentiles. And if the Gentiles would be saved as Gentiles, that means Jewish culture was not what saved, but God's promise through faith. And of course, if Jewish culture or Jewish law can't save you, no law can, right? Uh, don't rest in your culture, your actions, your works, your obedience, but rest in Jesus and his work in the cross and the resurrection. So point one, rest in Jesus. Point two, submit to Jesus. The, the council doesn't end here. It could. They could wrap it up and go home and say, okay, uh, we know that God has accepted the Gentiles. The end. Put a period. But the council doesn't end there. Because even when you realize that we're saved by grace, there are still questions. Okay, well, well what then? Uh, are, we're saved by grace. Are we perfected by our works? Uh, the Christian life starts with grace, but does it continue through the law? Uh, grace saved, uh, saves us. Does the law sanctify us? Um, we don't have to become Jewish to be saved. Okay, fine, but, but ought we become Jewish once we are saved? Uh, or, or is our culture irrelevant? I mean, just, does it just not matter how we live now that we've been saved by grace through faith? You know, I've heard many times that if grace is as free as we say, then people will begin to live any way they want. I mean, they're forgiven, right? Who cares how they live? What difference does it make now? I think the argument James makes next is this. Basically, you don't have to become Jewish, it's true, but you can't stay pagan. Verses 19 and 20, James says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now James picks out these four odd things, odd to us anyway, four things, and he says, don't do these. Uh, abstain from things polluted by idols, meaning meat sacrificed to idols, as he says in verse 29. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. And those last two probably go together, right? They're, because meat that was strangled wasn't properly drained, and so it would be meat with the blood still in it. Well, why does James pick out these four things? Uh, these things don't even seem to fit together. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, meat sacrificed to idols, I, I thought that was a non-issue in the Bible. Uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, on the other hand, sexual immorality seems to be bad no matter what. And finally, eating blood, well, that's tied to the Old Testament ceremonial law, and we would say that no longer applies in Christ because he has fulfilled it in himself. And, and so all three things seem to be completely unrelated, or at least on, on different levels. So what's going on? Well, there, there are two possibilities. Uh, two, two possible reasons for James's restrictions. Uh, I'm going to deal with one in this point and one in the next. Um, here's the first possibility. One writer put it like this. These four practices together uh, constitute a complex of pagan idolatrous worship in which Gentiles who trust in Jesus must no longer participate. To become Christians, Gentiles need not become Jews, but they cannot remain pagans. We must flee sexual immorality and idolatry, for we are not our own, but belong to a new master. And so you don't have to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan. 
Culture does not save you, but culture is not irrelevant. Culture must be transformed. That is, our individual lives must be transformed. And so we must say, for example, right, uh, you know, we, we often have a lot of international students that, that join us, especially during the school year, and we, we need to say to them, look, you, you don't have to become an American to become Christian, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't have to become an American. You don't have to adopt our culture, but you must re- reject the idolatrous aspects of your culture. Jesus is Lord. And of course, we have to say to one another, uh, we too must reject the idolatrous aspects of our culture, we must not baptize American materialism or individualism or, or techno- technological idolatry and claim that it is Christian. Jesus is Lord, right? not American culture. We must not worship at the idol of America. Rather, we must reject all American idols and worship at the feet of Jesus. We submit our lives to his standards, not ultimately the standards of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, not the standards of Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or Silicon Valley. We submit our lives to Jesus. And so we rest in Jesus because culture and law-keeping is not a matter of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we also submit to Jesus because culture is not irrelevant. Some aspects must be rejected as we turn from the idolatries of this age to Christ. So rest in Jesus, submit to Jesus, and third, love like Jesus. Uh, It's one thing to say that we must turn from sinful things. It's another thing to say what we must turn to. And uh, it's one thing to say that we must turn from the idolatrous elements in the present age. It's another thing to say what positively guides our new life. Again, some early Jewish Christians had an easy answer, the law, right? The Torah guides our new life. Simply follow the law and you won't go wrong. And while there, there is a moral law, right, the Ten Commandments, Uh, that's binding always and everywhere, uh, that's not what they're arguing about here. And while there are general principles found in the rest of Israel's law that can help guide us, uh, that too is not quite what they're arguing about here. They're arguing about whether it is necessary for Christians to be circumcised and take on the whole law of Moses. Moral, civil, ceremonial, the whole bit. Live your life by that. That becomes your code of ethics, they would say. But James's answer is clearly no. Uh, You don't have to become Jewish to become Christian, but you do need to reject certain elements in your culture. Uh, You don't need to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan. So what is it then that positively guides us in the Christian life? Well, one answer is the moral law just mentioned. That's true. That's not what James says here. It's not quite what he gets at. Uh, One understanding of this passage takes it a little bit differently. It's possible, as we said, that James is saying, stop being pagan. But others understand the passage to be saying this. Um, They see these four things as otherwise indifferent. Uh, Paul gives Christians a freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, especially if they don't know where it came from. He said, don't ask, right? Just eat it. It's just food that God made. Um, Strangled meat and blood are not intrinsically immoral. Medium rare steak is not a sin. For that matter, blood pudding, though I've never tried it. Uh, You still have this line about sexual immorality, of course, but uh, some take this not to be talking about sexual immorality in general, uh, but about uh, Jewish laws against marrying close relatives, right? There were certain Jewish laws against who you could and who you could not marry. And so this argument goes like this. Yes, these things are indifferent in and of themselves. uh, So why require Gentile churches to follow them out of love for their Jewish brothers? 
the idea is once, you, once you've established the fact that you don't have to be circumcised or keep the law in order to be saved, you're actually free to avoid certain things for the sake of others. And the goal is here, table fellowship, right? As it was uh, in Acts chapter 10, as it was in Galatians chapter 2, right? The goal is Jew and Gentile sitting down and fellowshiping together around the table. If certain things that I do so offend my brother that they can't actually sit down with me, uh, I can avoid those things for his sake. I don't have to avoid, I don't have to avoid them, right? Uh, but I can for the sake of the, quote, weaker brother. That's Paul's language, weaker brother. Um, but both must understand that this is not a matter of salvation, right? But just a matter of charity. It's important, though, to, to, to think through uh, the difference between the weaker brother on the one hand and the, the Pharisee or the legalist on the other, right? Uh, both might have the same scruples about eating something or doing something. But for the weaker brother, it's his weak conscience that causes him to feel condemned if he goes against those scruples. So you're saying, I don't, I don't want to cause my brother to fall into sin. I don't want to cause him to feel condemned in that way. Uh, for the Pharisee or the legalist, though, it's a hard heart that leads him to condemn others when they go against those scruples. It's totally different. Uh, the difference is, is crucial, right? Paul commends refraining from eating meat for the sake of the weaker brother, 1 Corinthians 10. But Paul condemns refraining from eating meat in capitulation to the legalist in Galatians chapter 2. Right? The, the motive there is totally uh, different and, and very important. Uh, give a different example, right? Clearly, Paul condemn, uh, condemns the requirement of circumcision in Galatians. Paul does not believe one must be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5, if one accepts circumcision, he is severed from Christ. It means if you think circumcision will save you, uh, you're trusting in your law-keeping rather than Jesus. And the Jerusalem Council seems to agree with this. Well, guess what's going to happen in the next chapter of Acts? Paul is going to have Timothy circumcised, quote, because of the Jews who were in those places. Seems like Paul is, is saying one thing and doing another, but he's not, right? The idea there is that Paul, Paul's not capitulating to the legalist, but he's bearing with the scruples of the weaker brother. He didn't want to cause uh, offense, unnecessary offense, if that offense doesn't need to be caused, right? He doesn't want to cause it. So what then is, is the principle? It seems like there are two different things. How do we parse these or put them together? Uh, one, certainly don't give in to legalists. Don't give in uh, to those who demand that you must fill in the blank in order to be saved, right? Then we turn to Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But on the other hand, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, Paul says. Let your liberty be determined by your neighbor's conscience. This is actually what Paul means by this famous passage. We, we quote it all the time, but we don't think about the context. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, what's the context of 1 Corinthians 10.31? Uh, the passage goes on to say, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, it's just possible that James here in Acts 15 wants the Gentiles to limit their freedom, not, be, not in order to be saved, but by the law of love. He's saying, don't give offense to your Jewish brothers by these things. Don't, yes, you don't take on the whole law. You don't need it to be saved. But you know, do these things uh, these few things, for the sake of your brother. 
Refrain from these key things so that their consciences are not harmed. Don't give in the legalists, but don't insist on your own way with a weaker brother either. Rather, give unnecessary offense to no one and seek the good of everyone that you may be saved. Now, now why would we do this, right? Why would we allow our freedom to be curbed by our brother's conscience? Well, because this is what the Son of God did for us. Uh, he, he, did, he, he was God in heaven, worshipped and adored by the angels, but he took on humanity. And as the God-man, he gave up his rights. He, he, he worked as a carpenter for 30 years. Uh, the king of heaven got hired out as a tradesman. Some ignored him, some rejected him, some betrayed him, some arrested him, some accused him, some condemned him, some nailed him to a tree. Why would the Son of God give up his rights and lay aside his glory and allow himself to be humiliated in such a way? Out of love. Right? Out of love for sinners. Out of love for the lost. Out of love for his own. Jesus calls us to that same self-denying love for the good of those around us. When he says, take up your cross and follow me. When it comes to salvation, of course, you don't have to, you don't have to become Jewish because Jew and Gentile are both saved by grace. Right? Culture is not a matter of salvation. Your, your obedience will not save you. Jesus saves. Rest in him. You don't have to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan, right? Culture is not irrelevant, but must be transformed. Jesus is Lord. We must submit to him. You don't have to become Jewish, but we must begin to regulate our behavior by love, right? Jesus' love fulfilled the law, and thus his love becomes the new norm, the new standard for the way we live our lives as we take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that our obedience is not what saves us. It's not how well I'm doing today. It's not whether I've lived up to my standards or the world's standards or even your standards. But we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Help us to cling to him with our whole hearts. Help us to rest in him. And then help us in turn to submit to him and to live our lives in Christ-like love, that he would be honored and glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.